Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we just pause right now. And we ask, Father, that that you would comfort our hearts. Lord, we know that you are the God of all comfort. And Lord, we uh, at this time we grieve and, and we are mourning with Nancy and the family as it seems that Larry is going to be going home soon. Father, bless the family. Guide them right now and, and comfort them with your love. Father, we thank you for the love that's in this room today. Father, we, as we've been learning about unity in, in the church through the book of Philippians, Father, we, uh, I am seeing that so vividly here at this church. And we see this body united and together. And we thank you for that blessing. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to speak to us and guide us and help us to be molded into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. That's why we are here. And that's why we come to listen to your word so that we might walk out of these doors and imitate the example of Jesus Christ and be his representatives on this earth. In his name we pray these things. Amen. Well, I want to talk about uh, something a little bit different now. I want to talk about shampoo. And uh, that's quite a transition now, isn't it? Now, Pantene Pro-V. If anybody Has anyone ever used Pantene Pro-V shampoo? Raise your hand if you're a, a Pantene Pro-V person. Okay, great. Well... Pantene Pro-V, I remember back, probably about in the 90s or so, they came out with uh, this shampoo and their slogan, does anybody remember the slogan? Hair so healthy it shines. Right, I heard about one person say that. Good. Hair so healthy it shines. That was Pantene's slogan. That was their motto. And they'd have all these ladies on commercials, you know, flowing their hair out so that you could all see this beautiful, shiny hair that, was, that, that, that had come as a result of shampooing with Pantene Pro-V. Hair so healthy, it shines. Well, interestingly enough, not too long ago, there was uh, Pantene, the, the CEO of Pantene came to our church and he asked me if I had any ladies that might be interested in one of their commercials. And I had two in mind, and you'll, you'll never believe it, they actually uh, took the job. Take a look at, uh, well, where is it? Oh, there they are. That's Liz and Katie up there. Doesn't that look nice? Hair so healthy, it shines. This was uh, from uh, the Christmas play two, a year and a half ago. And uh, I couldn't help but notice the Liz's shiny hair and, and Casey's wig as well. Well, actually, no, those aren't Pantene Pro-V models. But, uh, but hair so healthy it shines. That was their slogan. That was their motto. And everybody knew that motto when that commercial would come on. Well, today, I want to talk about something that shines. The Apostle Paul is going to talk about something that he would like to see shine. But it's not our hair. It's not as a result of the shampoo we use that we get this shine. This is the shining of the church. This is the shining that comes through unity, through humility, through a focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. My title today is A Church So Healthy It Shines. 
Let's take a look. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to go through Philippians 2, verses 12 to 18 today. And let's read it together. Philippians 2, verses 12 to 18. Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may be blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering, on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Where are we in the book of Philippians? Uh, some of us uh, have, have heard the, the last number of sermons and some of us have maybe been out of town on vacation and I wanted to bring us up to speed on where we are in the epistle to the Philippians. And so there's a few things I want to point out. First is this. In, in starting in verse 27 of the last chapter, we've started to really see Paul pushing this concept of unity. He says, I want the church to be united, beginning in verse 27. And in particular, he wanted their conduct to be one that was humble. Humility of the members of the church. So unity of the church, humility of its members, and all of that, is contingent upon having an overarching focus on the Gospel. When we think about the message and person of Jesus Christ, we will act in unity and humility. That's Paul's message, beginning in verse 27 there. And then we got, last week, we got to verse 5, which began, actually verse 6 began this great, perhaps Christian hymn of old, that the earliest church may have sung together or recited together. Uh, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. So we see the humility, the humble descent of Jesus, and eventually his final exaltation that was due to, which was the logical consequence of, his humility. And so we see Paul, he's weaving this theme through and through. And when we get to verse 12, we should expect nothing less. We shouldn't expect a, a vast transition. Instead, Paul is going to continue the themes of unity, of humility, of focusing on the gospel starting in verse 12. He's going to continue this thought. But we come to verse 12, and this... This idea of continuing the thought of unity and humility, it, it, it seems to have a wrench thrown into it. Because verse 12 is an awful tough verse. Let's take a look at verse 12 as we get started. Paul says this, Therefore, in other words, in light of everything I've said, unity, humility, focus on the gospel, 
mimic the example of Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved Christians at Philippi, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't seem to continue the theme now, does it? That seems on the on a cursory reading of that verse to totally go in a different direction. Well, we have to deal with this. This verse is a plea for obedience, first and foremost. There's a correspondence, uh, if you look back at verse 8 in chapter 2, where it says Christ was obedient. And now Paul's continuing the theme of obedience, being obedient. But what are we to be obedient to? Paul says, work out your own salvation. Salvation with fear and trembling. What does this mean? What does this verse mean? Uh, I want to give you a one-statement example of what historically many uh, Christians have thought it to mean. And I, I, it, we'll take a look at this. Does, this. does verse 12 mean this? Does it mean that we need to work out, work out our eternal salvation or what we might call our justification by showing God how fearful and trembling we are before Him? Now that is a very common interpretation of verse 12. Very common, historically. Um, unfortunately, I'll save you the, the suspense. Uh, no, that is not what it means. And I will begin to, to explain why that is not what it means. There's very clear evidence as to why that statement is absolutely incorrect. Absolutely incorrect. So, now we come to the question, why... Is Philippians 2.12 not referring to eternal salvation or justification? And I want to give you four reasons. And this is on your, uh, your handout. This is kind of, this is really the, the crux of the message. It, it begins and ends with verse 12 almost. Once you get through verse 12, the rest of it just flows very smoothly. But why is Philippians 2.12 not referring to eternal salvation first? Paul has been critical of vain individualism. Hasn't he? And instead, he's been repeatedly urging corporate unity, corporate unity in the church. So why would he suddenly turn to the topic of justification, of individual justification? That's a very good reason right off the bat. Paul has been talking about the body, the church, the group, all of us. And all of a sudden, verse 12, and uh, by the way, uh, make sure individually you work out your justification of fear and trembling. Huh? That doesn't seem to make sense. That doesn't seem to jive with where Paul's going in this text. And in particular, take a look at what he says again in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Look at what he said. He said, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Better than himself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So he's saying outward focus, outward focus, not inward focus. Paul's not talking about individualism. He's talking about corporate unity in the context, and we need to be sensitive to that. Secondly, secondly, and these, these, com- these combine upon each other. Not one of them separately could prove that it's not talking about justification, but combined, I believe they do. Number two, the verb Paul uses, the verb work out. The verb work out. Work out your salvation is a plural command. A plural command. You all work out your salvation. All of us together work out our salvation. Stays with the context. Paul is talking 
in plural terms here. He's talking about a collective effort. A collective effort. Number three, the verb work out, again, routinely refers to slow, gradual progress. Let me say that again. Slow, gradual progress toward an end result. Justification, by contrast, occurs how fast? Immediately. Immediately by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the teaching of Scripture, ladies and gentlemen. It's very clear that when we are saved, it is by faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life, period. And we are immediately justified through that faith. By contrast, this verb is a verb that indicates slow, gradual progress toward an end result. It is not immediate. It has a sense of being brought to completion. Since when is our eternal salvation, our justification, something we need to work at day by day until it is finally accomplished one day? No, that's not the idea of justification. That perhaps might be the idea of sanctification. It is the idea of sanctification. But let me say this too. A good friend of mine at this church was listening to a prominent Christian preacher not too long ago. And uh, he was asked, uh, the preacher on the radio was asked the question, uh, how many of those people that walked down the aisle, how many of the people that walked down the aisle to receive Christ, how many of them do you think are saved? And the preacher said, well, time will tell. Three words. How many of them, how many of them that walked down the aisle are actually saved? Time will tell. Time will tell? Time will tell? Actually, no, the answer is those that believed are saved. Those that believe are saved immediately. It's not over time. It's not over a lifestyle of good Christian conduct which gets us into heaven. Let it be very clear. Justification by faith in Christ is immediate. It is not slow. And it is not gradual. Fourth, fear and trembling. This phrase, fear and trembling, is a phrase exclusive to Paul. Exclusive to Paul. Paul's the only one that uses this phrase. And is always used in reference to our temperament toward, get this, other believers, not toward God. Now, that is very significant. In other words, every time Paul uses this stock phrase, this might be some, somewhat of an idiom, actually, this fear and trembling. Every time he uses it, he uses it and says, you are to be fearful and trembling in your dealings with others. Or you are to, to receive people in fear and trembling. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Take a look at this passage in 2 Corinthians 7.13. Look at what it says. Paul has sent Titus to the church at Corinth. And look what he says. He says, We rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. They received, the church at Corinth received Titus with fear and trembling. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not a phrase that it's in reference to how we are to act toward God. While we are to be 
uh, in awe and respectful and, in a sense, trembling before God, in scriptures, it's used exclusively of how we're to interact with one another. With one another. And we need to take that to the table as we interpret verse 12. What does it mean, by the way, to be fearful and tremble, to have fear and trembling toward one another? Uh, taking the words one by one, as I said, uh, it may give more of a forceful impression than, than, than Paul meant as combined. Uh, when we take fear and trembling individually, we see very powerful words. Uh, but Paul perhaps meant it to a little lesser degree combined. I would say the best uh, idea that scholars have today of what to have fear and trembling looks like is to have this profound respect toward one another. Profound respect toward one another or deferring to others. Deferring in weakness to someone else. It's the idea of humility. It's the idea of humility, which is exactly what Paul's been talking about in this entire book. In light of these four reasons, in light of these four reasons, we cannot in good conscience read verse 12 as a command to be fearful and trembling toward God as we attempt to accomplish our eternal salvation. That is not the case. So now the question is, what does it mean? How do we interpret verse 12? Okay, again, just to review, on the one hand, we need to remember this needs to be, this is a plural, excuse me, this is a corporate command. It is for the whole church. Now remember that. Secondly, it must be a command that is achieved slowly and gradually, not immediately, as the verb suggests. And thirdly, it must be a command that pertains to our profound respect and deference, deferring to one another. These are the boundaries upon which we need to interpret verse 12. These are the parameters. Now we come to the word salvation. The word salvation. And here's the kicker. Salvation, Greek, soterion, used in a number of different ways in the New Testament. I've said this once and we'll say it again and again and again because in Western churches, we see salvation and we think, aha, eternal salvation. That's what it means. No. In fact, very, very often it's not the case that it means eternal salvation. Salvation can have a number of meanings, a wide range of meanings. Among them are these. Take a look. In Philippians 1.19, remember this, salvation meant deliverance from prison. How about in 128? So that time it did mean eternal salvation. In the book of Romans, you read the book of Romans, you'll notice uh, if, you, if you take a theology class in Romans, a good professor will tell you more often than not, if not always, means deliverance from wrath. From wrath. That means the temporal wrath of God. Instead, he uses the word justification in Romans to refer to salvation, our eternal salvation. In the book of Acts, it can mean to rescue or to survive. Paul talked about surviving the shipwreck in, in uh, near Malta, and he said, I was saved. In other words, I survived the crash. In the Gospels, Jesus uses the word to, to refer to healing and to preservation. So we have wide parameters here. We have some wiggle room, if you will. How do we interpret verse 12? I believe this. I believe it is safe to assume that... Salvation in this context, based on the context of Philippians, means this. It means the survival, the preservation, the healing of the church at Philippi. 
is a corporate command. A corporate command. Plural. Together as a church, we need to preserve, we need to continue to heal, we need to continue to survive, we need to build up the health of the body of Christ. Save the church. Save the church. Let me add this. Philippians 2.12, to be very succinct here, does not refer to eternal salvation, but the church's salvation. The church's salvation. That the church would be preserved, healed, and made whole by its members who do what? Who exhibit fear and trembling. That is, humble respect and deference toward one another. My opinion, this takes into consideration the best contextual evidence in this book. He's been talking about unity. He's been talking about humility. He's been talking about acting, becoming of Christ, acting in the way Christ would act, showing respect and deference toward one another. Why then would Paul turn to justification? He wouldn't. He wouldn't. Paul continues to talk about the church. And he says, I want you to save your church. Make it healthy. Heal it. Restore it. Deliver it. Make it whole. This is the salvation of the church. The interpretation of salvation as the health and well-being of the church at Philippi is even further strengthened by the next verse. Let's take a look at verse 12. Paul says this, For it is God, God, who works in you, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. God is at work. God is at work. Paul says, you're not alone in this. The command to save the church is not a command that we're left alone to do. God is going to work alongside of us. And this idea uh, that God is working in you, God who works in you, has also the idea of how He gives us spiritual gifts. The same uh, word there is used when he, he offers us spiritual gifts. So he's working through us by gifting us, by giving us uh, promptings and, and resources by which we can make the church healthy. God is not forcing our wills. Let's be very clear. God is not forcing our wills based on verse 13. He is prompting us to action. Remember at the start of Philippians in uh, verse 6, where it said this, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And we learned that that good work was financial partnership. God initiated it. Divine initiation coupled with what? Human action. Divine initiation coupled with human action. That's the message here. Paul says, just as you gave financially based on God's initiation, so now I want you to save your church Heal your church. Make your church whole. And God is going to help you to do that. God is going to assist you. He's going to prompt you. He's going to give you opportunities to accomplish the salvation of your church. How do, you, how do we do it? By showing love and respect toward one another. It's a cooperative effort between God and us. He prompts us to action and we act. I wanted to read a quote here which I think is a very fitting summary of verse 13. A man by the name of F.B. Meyer says this. 
He says, He, God, may be working in you to confess to that fellow Christian that you were unkind in your speech or act. Work it out. He may be working in you to be sweeter in your home and gentler in your speech. Begin. This very day, let God begin to speak and work and will and then work out what He works in. I love that phrase. Work out what He works in. Be sensitive to divine initiation. We are spiritual beings. God's Spirit is within us and He is prompting us by the reading of God's Word, through prayer. You're sitting in the pews right now and you may be getting a sense of, wow, I, I, there's that one thing I need to do for the Lord. That's, that's the Spirit of the Lord talking to you. That's the Holy Spirit of God prompting you. And uh, don't ignore it. Don't ignore it. Let God work in you and then work it out. Very simple principle. And very succinctly stated by F.B. Meyer there. What is He willing? What is God willing you to do today? What is He prompting you to do today? And what are the things that God wants us to do for His good pleasure? It says that He wants us to do this for His good pleasure, to save the church, and this is the manner in which we're to work it out. Look at what He says in verse 14. He says, Do all things, do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And you've got to love those words complaining and disputing because I can't help but think of a church, right? Right? You can laugh. Complaining and disputing, does that sound like a church? No, of course not. Of course it does. That's what churches are all about, right? Complaining and disputing. That's what we do. Um, and the words that Paul uses is really funny, too, because complaining means murmuring. Murmuring. Are you a murmurer? You kind of, oh, remember she was wearing the other day? Woo! Do you murmur? Oh, Pastor Neil, that was an okay sermon this time. I don't know. Do you murmur? Do you complain? Paul says, no, don't do it. In fact, this word murmuring is so significant. Uh, it has such significant historical connotations that if you look back in Numbers 14, Numbers 14, we don't have it up there right now, but on your own, go back to Numbers 14. God says this about murmuring. He says that because of their murmuring toward Him, the, the Jews in the wilderness before they enter the Promised Land, because of their murmuring, He said they will die in the wilderness. Because of their complaining, they would not enter the Promised Land. Whew. That's pretty significant. God takes murmuring seriously. He takes complaining seriously. Don't be a murmurer. How about a disputer? This is a funny word here because it actually, if you break it apart in Greek, it has the idea of on account of words. On account of words. In other words, fighting over he said, she said. Well, he said this. I remember he said it. I'm standing my ground. He said it. I didn't say it. Do we dispute over words? He said, she said Paul says, you know what, this, this is child's play. This is child's play. This is not for a church. I'm proud of this church because, you know, uh, every church has some of this. But you know what? 
Coast, Coast is moving forward. We are moving. We are far away from this, in my opinion. I really believe that. I believe this church is healthy. I believe this church is strong. And I believe we're going to be growing for the future. But we need to be, be very clear as we move forward that we need to put aside murmuring and the he said, she saids. Verse 15, why? That you may become blameless, blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. The idea of without fault is the idea of without blemish. It has the idea of, uh, of an Old Testament sacrifice, to be spotless, a fitting sacrifice without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. I want to show you some correspondence. Actually, the antithesis of this. Take a look at Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. It says of the Jews in the wilderness, it says this, They have corrupted themselves. They are not His children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. What do you think Paul was meditating on as he wrote Philippians? Chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Looks to me like he might have been listening to Moses in Deuteronomy 32. He's saying, wow, look at, look at why the Jews failed in the wilderness. Look at why they didn't get into the promised land. They murmured. They complained. They disputed. And in so doing, they were spotted. They were blemished. They were unfitting. To receive God's blessing and to enter the land. Unfit. They were the crooked and perverse generation, as Moses describes them. Whew. Significant statement there. By contrast, Paul says, don't be like that. They had opportunity and they blew it. By contrast, let this body, let this group... Be without blame. Be blameless, faultless, unblemished, so that we can be lights in a crooked and perverse generation. Not be a crooked and perverse generation. And that's what he's going to go on to say. He says in verse 15b and following, he says, Among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. This is what we're to do. We're to shine as lights in the world, Actually, this is more likely a command. It could be a command or it could be uh, among whom you shine. There's actually two alternatives here in Greek. It's most likely a command, though. Among whom you must shine. You must shine. Paul's been using commands here and he's using it again. You must shine before the world, the crooked and perverse generation. It's imperative that you do this. Shine like lights or like stars. could be translated stars in the world. Let our church be so healthy it shines. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a bowl. But on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds. And glorify your Father in heaven. Harry Dixon Lowe's. Anybody know that name? Harry Dixon Lowe's? That's a tough name. 1944, he wrote a song, This Little Light of Mine. I'm going to let it shine. He was actually an old Negro spiritual. And um, 
when you think of that song, you can't help but think of what Paul's saying here and what Jesus said in Matthew 5. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Don't let Satan hit it out. I'm going to let it shine. Let's shine. Let's be so healthy we shine. Let our faith, as, as, as healthy and as deep-rooted it is, let our faith overflow into the world that we might shine in a perverse and crooked generation. Are you shining? Do you have a wax? Why do we shine? It's not, and Paul says this, it's not merely based on our fear and trembling toward one another. It's not based on how we just act toward one another, but it's based on our Christ-like conduct. Based on what undergirds and empowers our conduct, he says the word of life, which is another way of saying the gospel. The word of life. Holding fast to the word of life, and it always comes back to the gospel for Paul. By holding fast to the gospel, the word of life, we as a collective group of believers will shine in a world that is in darkness. Now he's going to say something really, really off the wall for me, personally. I read this a dozen times, and I still, I love what he says. It caught me by surprise that he said it, but I understand what he says. Let me read it, and then I'll tell you why it surprised me. Verse 16 says this. So that I may rejoice, Paul says, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. This struck me by surprise because here Paul is adding further motivation to obey. Okay, Paul is saying, I want you to obey so that you'll shine his lights, so that you'll glorify God in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation. But now he's going to give another reason why he wants them to be healthy and shine. He says, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. It's not only to please the Lord, Paul says, which is of utmost importance, but our contribution to the health of the body of Christ is a considerable factor in how Jesus Christ will judge us on the last day. Paul, and I don't want to use the word selfish, because that's, the, that's an incorrect word, but in a sense, Paul is saying, be healthy, so that when I approach Jesus Christ... At the Bema Seed Judgment, the Judgment Seed of Christ, spoken about in 2 Corinthians 5, when I walk before Jesus Christ on that day, not to, not to enter the kingdom because He already knows I'm a believer, but to receive rewards, when I stand before Jesus, Paul says, I want you to be healthy. I want you to be healthy so that when Jesus asks me, what did you do with what I entrusted to you? I can say, I did that. I helped build that right there. That is what I did for you. That church at Philippi. Those believers over there. Those shining ones. That's what I did for you, Jesus. Paul is saying, I want you to shine so that I could also be approved before Jesus Christ on that last day. And we need to take that very seriously. We need to realize that what you and I do in interacting with one another affects how Jesus Christ will view us 
on the last day. In my case, if I'm entrusted to leave this church, Jesus is going to say, what did you do with Coast Bible Church? That'll be one of the primary questions he'll he'll ask me. And I pray I'll be able to point and say, I helped build that. That shining church up on the hill. And in effect, that means I would say to you, as Paul says to Philippi, I want you to obey because I also want to be approved before Jesus. You are helping me before Christ. You are helping me before Christ. Your conduct is not individual. What you do does not just affect you. It affects others. What did you do with the responsibility I entrusted to you? One day you and I will be entrusted. Excuse me. One day Jesus will ask us, what did, I, what did you do with what I entrusted to you? And I ask you, what will you point to? What will you point to? Will you point to your spouse and say, I selflessly loved and served my spouse. I kept his or her needs above my own. I loved my spouse. Will you point to your job? I worked honorably. I did not cheat my employer or my clients. I gave up illegitimate monetary gains to preserve my integrity. Will you point to your children? I raised my kids to be respectful of God and others. My kids knew I loved them in spite of the times I had to discipline them for misbehavior. Friends, Jesus wants you to point to something. What are you doing with what he's entrusted to you? And you have been entrusted with responsibilities. Identify what those are and make good on them. Look what he says, uh, final thought, 2 Corinthians 1.14. He says this, We are your boast to the Corinthians, as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. On the last day, I will very much be evaluated based on how I conduct myself with respect to this church. On the last day, you will be evaluated based on how you conduct yourself with your Sunday school class, with your spouse, with your kids, with your job. We're in this together. Verse 17. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. Verse 17 expresses Paul's hope. Paul's hope that he can and will rejoice in what he has done for the church of Philippi and they can rejoice in what has been accomplished in their church. The idea of being poured out here is uh, the concept of, be, of completing a sacrifice. Completing a sacrifice. They, in ancient times, uh, in, in some uh, Jewish uh, sacrifices and in very many pagan sacrifices, they would pour uh, wine or some sort of uh, uh, ointment upon the sacrificial altar as a symbol of completion. Paul says... I'm going to be poured out on the sacrifice and service of your faith. I, my effort is going to complete, alongside your effort, it's going to come to completion here. We together 
are going to complete a sacrifice to God. This should remind us also of 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, where he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. I fought the good fight, finished the race, have kept the faith. Finally, what does he expect? He expects rewards. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, the Bema Seat, judgment of Christ, that day. And not to me only, but to all who have loved his appearing. Friends, Paul's saying, obey with me so that we can be approved before Jesus Christ. This is a cause of joy. This is a cause of joy. When a father or mother, through persistent love and care for his children, begins to see his children seek the Lord on their own accord, that parent rejoices. When a teacher gives a final exam and all the students pass with flying colors, that teacher rejoices. And in the same way, Paul's saying, when all is said and done, and I look at my sacrifice and I see your sacrifice combined to make a complete obedient, unblemished sacrifice before God. Let's rejoice. Let's have joy in that. Together, we can rejoice in our mutual efforts of sacrifice on behalf of Jesus Christ. Application. What can we learn from this? First is this. Let's not forget all the way back to verse 12. Let's not forget it. This is a critical, critical verse. Verse 12. Philippians 2.12 is not a command, excuse me, is a command to save the church. It is not a command to eternal salvation through fear and trembling. It's a command to save the church, to preserve the church's health by showing humble respect toward one another, acting with fear and trembling. Two, when the Spirit of God prompts you, act. Act, Paul says. Pay attention to the teaching of God's Word. In your own study of God's Word, when He prompts you through it, act upon it. When you're praying and the Spirit of God prompts you to give a call or to write a letter to someone in need, act on it. That is divine-initiated grace in you. And we now need to act. Work out, as the quote said, work out what He works in. What a great quote. Work out what He works in. Finally, and this is so important, identify what God has entrusted to you. We all have something. A spouse, kids, a job. Maybe we've been entrusted with wealth, spiritual gifts, a particular ministry in this church. Gary's been entrusted with the chaplaincy for the police department. Identify what you've been entrusted with and realize that Jesus will one day ask you, what did you do with that? I will evaluate you based on that. A church so healthy it shines. Let's be a church so healthy we shine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now Lord, you've you've called us to unite together upon a common bond, the person and message of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the word of life. And Father, I pray right now that this church would continue to unite. It is a slow and gradual progress that we are making, Father, as that verb suggests, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It is slow and gradual. It is not immediate. 
But let us be painstakingly working out this unity, this humility among us, so that our church would shine, that it would be healthy, nourished, and made whole. Father, we commit this church to your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that it would be the most shining representative of him. In his name we pray. Amen.